Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, as I have been mentioning throughout our service, uh, Noah Ridge and I spent the last two Sundays with the missions team we support in the Balkans. Uh, this team is comprised of seven people from four different nations united together in an effort to bring the gospel to a city where there is only one known Christian. And as Noah and I uh, shared time together with that team and heard their heart for their city and their region, we were really grateful to understand and be reminded of the fact that even though our church is small and thousands of miles away, we have had the privilege of partnering with them in their gospel work. We have given of our money and our time and our energy and our prayers to, in some small way, further the ministry there. Our desire, of course, is to continue to do that in less smaller and less smaller ways, to give sacrificially of ourselves to the work in the Balkan region. But for this morning, I, I think in a small way, this helps us get a, a glimpse of Paul's heart as he opens up his letter to the Philippian church in the passage Aubrey just read for us. Paul is, is writing what will be his most joy-filled letter. One pastor calls it his sunniest epistle. And at the outset, we see just why he's so joy-filled. It's because the church at Philippi has been committed to partnering with him in the work of the gospel. So, a bit of background as we dive into this letter. This letter was written around 60 AD by the Apostle Paul. About 10 years earlier, so the early 50s or late 40s AD, Paul had been traveling on what was his second missionary journey. Uh, he had uh, been traveling in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, and then, uh, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, he had left that area and had set sail and landed in Eastern Europe, in Macedonia, what's now modern-day Greece. Now, you can read about these travels 
in Acts chapter 16. We'll look at that in a little bit. And as he landed in Macedonia, he landed at Neapolis, but then kind of didn't spend much time there and traveled instead inland to a city called Philippi. Philippi was a hub of activity. It was placed along the Ignatian Way, a Roman-built road that ran through the area. And so even though Rome was a great deal away, Philippi was a colony of Rome. And it was called by some a a mini-Rome. So Paul and his companions came to Philippi on that second missionary journey. And we read in the 16th chapter of Acts that on the Sabbath, they left the city and, and went down by the river where they saw women praying. That was the beginning of the Philippian church. Paul preached the gospel that day. And a lady named Lydia believed. Lydia's whole household was baptized And she invited Paul and his companions into her home. It was a good start, perhaps, but as we read in Acts 16, things soon become unraveled. So a girl who told fortunes for money began following Paul as he traveled and and disturbing what he was doing. And and so when Paul, in the power of Christ, annoyingly, it actually says he was annoyed, turned and rebuked the evil spirit in the girl, and it came out... The men who were making money off her fortune-telling became enraged. And we read how they brought Paul and his partner Silas Silas before the magistrates, where they were beaten and imprisoned. They were put in stocks. And in Acts 16, starting in verse 25, we read that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. As we continue reading in there in Acts, Paul and Silas soon find themselves freed, their shackles broken by the earthquake. But they remain in the prison and preach the gospel to the very man who had jailed them. And he and his whole family believe in Christ. After that, Paul and Silas sort of unceremoniously depart the city. But the church in Philippi has begun. They had arrived and left behind a church. Later on in his third missionary journey, Paul again visits Philippi. But now the time of his writing of this letter to Philippi, a decade or so has passed since he first came there in Acts 16. Paul is now writing to them from Rome, and he's under house arrest for preaching about Jesus. As we'll see in in a few sermons, he's unsure whether he'll live or die, but he's so full of joy. This work of building the church in Philippi has been a work of joy for him because he has seen over and over again that it's the work of God through him. And so he begins there in verse 1. And he greets them. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls himself and Timothy servants or slaves 
of Christ. You'll probably remember if you've read others of Paul's letters that it's not uncommon for him to actually begin the greeting to his letters by saying that he's an apostle, that he has authority, that he comes with the words of God himself. Paul knows the Philippian church well, and he's writing humbly to a church he loves, and he simply calls himself a fellow slave of Christ. This will have bearing on the admonition he gives them in the, in the chapters to come, that they might also show humility to one another. He serves King Jesus as a slave to the God who loves him, having left the service of sin to enter the loving service of the king. And then he addresses the Philippian Christians as saints. Saints doesn't mean what we today often think of as saints, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. That is kind of a select group of people who have reached a sort of holy, praiseworthy status. No, for Paul, in Christ, every single believer in Christ is a saint, a holy one, devoted to God's glory, saved by his grace. So, Christian, this morning, you're a saint. You might not have felt like one this past week. But you've been purchased by God. You've been brought from death to life. You've been made holy by the blood of Christ. You've been set free now to have a life devoted to him. Lived in freedom and devotion to God. Paul writes as a servant to saints. And after his greeting in verses 1 through 2, Paul then enters into this joy-filled account of his gratitude for the Philippian church. And this, these few verses are actually super packed with things we could un- unpack. But there are a few things I think we should point out for our purposes this morning. Mainly, uh, mainly three things that Paul does in these opening verses. First, he rejoices. He rejoices. Second, he assures. He assures. And third, he prays. He prays. So let's look at those three things in order then. So first, Paul rejoices. Look with me at verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So Paul is saying that whenever he prays for the Philippian church, he's, he's met with joy. His reminiscence of them and his intercession for them in prayer is joy-filled. Joy will be one of the constant refrains of this letter. Paul's, letter, Paul's joy, as we'll see, is, is contagious. And he commands the Philippians over and over again to to be infected by that joy, to rejoice with him. Church, this reminded me this past week, and it must remind all of us that joy, whether we've heard this or not, it's helpful to remember again, joy, Christian joy, is not contingent on our circumstances. It cannot be, because if it were, Paul would have no reason for joy here. Remember, he's imprisoned in Rome. He's awaiting news of potential execution. He has been mistreated. He has been abused. He has been oppressed, hated, tried, deserted, betrayed. 
And yet in the midst of all of this, he has overabundant joy. Joy not in his own ease, not in his own comfort, but in the love of Christ that is evident in his relationship with the church. This joy is not shaken by persecution. In fact, it grows with persecution. It's joy, it's love rooted in the gospel, not in news of a potential better living situation, not in news of coming prosperity like so many preachers today will promise. This joy does not come from the here and now only. It's unshakable because it's rooted in the eternal God. It's not based on Paul's emotions, but on the glory of his Savior. What's he rejoicing about? Verse 5. He writes that he prays with this joy. Why? Because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel with him from the first day, Acts 16, until now. So this partnership isn't only good feelings or a spiritual connection from afar, good memories and nostalgia for Paul. It could have been some of those things. But I, I think more, more deeply, it's just been lived out. This partnership has been Paul seeing the Philippians, even in some of their poverty, extend themselves sacrificially for his support, given of themselves at cost to themselves more than once. They have worked together with Paul for the gospel, and the depth of that partnership gives Paul so much joy because it's evidence that their faith is real, that their faith is active. It's a proof that their lives have indeed been changed by the gospel. And so for the, the apostle who had begun that church and first preached the gospel to them, this is utter joy. See, church, Paul's prayer is not merely personal, just kept between him and God. He's sharing it. He's praying with joy for others, and then he's telling them that he's praying for them and telling them what he's praying for them, as he does so many other places with so many other churches and individuals in the New Testament. This is a ready application for us here, church. Do you pray, members of this church, for other members of this church? That's the purpose of our membership directory. It's not merely to know someone else's email address so you can invite them over for a party, but use it for that, but to pray for them, to be reminded of their face, to ask God to be at work in them. As you, as you pray then, I'd encourage you to let other members know you're praying for them. Maybe you're afraid that that will show kind of spiritual pride on your part. I don't know, take the risk. Right? I remember in the early days of Loudoun Valley, Aaron Kay, who's not with us this morning, he was, he was praying through the membership directory and he would email whoever he was praying for that week and ask how he could intercede for them, how he could encourage them. Let's follow Aaron's example. Let's pray and then let others know that we're praying. This will build up the unity of the church here at Loudoun Valley. And church, like I said, Paul is joyful in part because he sees that the Philippians' generosity and their sacrifice and their partnership with him is evidence that they love Christ. It's evidence of their salvation. And that's what we see in verse 6. That's our next point. So Paul rejoices. Paul assures. He says in verse 6, I am sure of this. 
What? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Philippians, will bring it to completion when Jesus comes back. So in view of that coming day when Christ will descend in glory and save his people and judge his enemies, Paul says he sees evidence of faith. He sees evidence of love in the Philippians that gives him the assurance to say that they'll persevere, that they're truly children of God. Paul is shifting from kind of looking back in verses 3 through 5, looking back at their partnership, their relationship over the years, to kind of pointing their eyes forward. The fruit of salvation that their hearts have borne out over the years assures him, and now ought to assure them that they're on the path towards heaven. Friend, if you're a Christian, chances are you've experienced seasons of doubt about whether you really are a Christian. It seems to be one of the shared experiences for all who would trust in Christ. And it makes sense if you think about it. The gospel and the work of Christ has utterly changed and fundamentally transformed our hearts, given us new hearts by God's grace. But sin still clings closely. Our affections for our God ebb and flow. So Paul in this verse and in future verses in this letter is showing that one of the key ways to be assured of our salvation, especially when there's more ebb than flow, is to investigate our lives, to look for fruit. Fruit that is the revelation of a changed heart. Not to make God love us. He's going to make that clear in chapter 2. It's not a way to earn his favor. It's proof that he has loved us already, that he has changed us already, and that we're never going to be the same. Paul rejoices and assures the church That he sees evidence of their faith. And so he's confident they will persevere to the end. But notice where the buck stops for Paul when it comes to eternal security and assurance. It doesn't stop with the strength of the faith of the Philippians. It doesn't stop with the power of Paul's prayers. The ultimate reason Paul can be so sure that the Philippians have a status as God's children is assurance in God himself. In verse 6, Paul is pointing out that the work of salvation in the Philippians has not begun with them. It's begun in them, but it hasn't begun with them. It's begun with the work of another, with God. It's interesting to see that even back in Acts 16, when, when the church of Philippi was created, when Lydia became the first Christian there, that, that Paul found. We, we read in Acts 16, Luke is writing Acts, and this is what he says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And how does Luke say Lydia was converted? He says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she was baptized. It's clear that the church in Philippi was started by God. That the faith in Lydia's heart was initiated by the Lord. 
And the same is true for us, brothers and sisters. God is the initiator of our salvation. And so the ultimate confidence we have in our faith must be based in the character of the one who has begun that faith. And what's his character? It's the character of the creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. It's a character of steadfastness and faithfulness. That's where we find the root of our confidence. That's where we find the root of our rest. He is the one in in whom we find the root of our joy. We sang it earlier, didn't we? When I fear my faith will fail. Have you been there this week? Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, so he must hold me fast. Christian, your eternal security is dependent on God, not you. Yes, of course, we must evaluate our lives consistently, looking for evidences of fruit in our hearts. Paul commands that in others of his letters. But ultimately, our rest must not be in ourselves or even our own self-introspection, but in the one who has begun the work in us and who has promised to complete that work in us. It's amazing. Paul can't even be sure that he'll live to see the next day. But he is sure that God will see him in the church through to the end of days. Brother and sister, if you are in Christ, you can never lose your salvation because you never earned it. Don't overestimate the power you have to throw off God's plan. Rejoice in his love for you. Pursue him at all costs and rest in the good work he has promised to complete in you at the day of Jesus Christ. Last week, as Noah and I were traveling in the Balkans, I remember seeing, it wasn't an uncommon sight, I don't think, seeing a, a large building that had been halfway built and then put up for sale. It was a, this one especially was a large structure, concrete was in place, stairways had been constructed, but there were no walls, there was nothing it was left bare. I, I don't know why. Perhaps it was meant to be that way, though I doubt it. Maybe the builders ran out of money. Maybe the structure became unstable. Whatever the case, though, it didn't look good. It had been left undone. It was a mar on the landscape. Christian, the builder who has started the work of saving your soul will not leave his work undone. He will complete it until Jesus returns. He will not leave it abandoned. God's purposes for you, Christian, will not be thwarted. Take comfort in that. Your confidence in God, I assure you, will not result in laziness or apathy but in fueled obedience. Be confident in the one who has saved you. Be confident like King David, who prayed in Psalm 138, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. 
Paul or David prays and he knows the character of his God to whom he's praying. That he will fulfill his purpose. So, Christian, if you struggle with eternal security, you're not alone. Be honest with your doubts. Run to other Christians who know you, who can help speak truth into your soul, who can help you see evidences of salvation and faith in your heart that you cannot see. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul here and rejoice that you will be kept, not by the strength of your faith, but by the strength of the one who holds you fast. I like how the author, Alec Matir, says it on this passage. He says, the human will blows hot and cold, is firm and unstable by fits and starts. It offers no security of tenure, but it is the will of God that is the ground of salvation. Paul rejoices because the love and the partnership he has experienced from the church at Philippi gives him assurance that they are truly children of God. And as those true children, assurance that they will never be lost. Paul rejoices, Paul assures, and then finally we see that Paul prays. He's talked about his prayers so far, but this is one where we actually see him praying. First of all, in verses 7 through 8, he, he continues to rejoice. He shows his affection for the church. He says he holds them in his heart that they have shared together in grace with him. When he was preaching the gospel and things looked okay, and when he was in prison and things looked dire. He says he yearns for them for, with, with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves them like Jesus loves them. And this love then drives the prayer that we see him give in the last three verses, 9, 10, and 11. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The theme of our service this morning, and one of the themes we'll see reiterated in this letter, is this exhortation to love and unity in the church. We see that here at the very beginning. As he prays that the Philippians love for one another would increase and multiply more and more. And, and notice, this is super simple, but notice that he's praying for God to do this. Because only God can do this in a church. Christian love is not based on solidarity or personality or compatibility. Christian love is based on the character of God because Christian love is a gift from God. So Paul is praying to God. He's asking God to create this love, for God to accomplish this unity at the church in Philippi. Loudon Valley, we pray often in our corporate services for unity in this church because we can be sure that that will be one area of our church that's always under attack. And the reason that we give this matter to prayer 
is because we know only God can do it in our midst. Only God can give the members of Loudoun Valley the humility, the, the grace, and the patience we need to make this, a, this church a place of forgiveness, a place of peace, not division and strife. Only God can do that. Sure, we obey, we We are called by the power of the Spirit to fight tendencies in ourselves to create sinful conflict and division among brothers and sisters. But ultimately, we need God to make sure that happens. No amount of community groups or Bible studies or outreach programs will increase our love and our unity if God is not at work in us. So like Paul does for the Philippians, we must ask him to do that work. This love is not innate to the Philippians. It's something that they've been shown by the gospel. Remember what Jason read for us earlier from the fourth chapter of 1 John. That's where we see the ultimate place that love is displayed. The love that Paul wants to abound in the church. So John in 1 John 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us by all your community groups. Know that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, he says. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. That word propitiation means that Jesus came to take God's wrath directed towards sinners meant for our sin, and that he not only turned it away from us, but he actually turned it into favor for us. That's what propitiation means. It means that Jesus, by dying on the cross under the judgment for our sins, by giving us his perfect righteousness, didn't just make us neutral before God, didn't just take away our sin and make us clean, but actually then made us the dear sons and daughters of God, deeply loved by the ruler of the universe. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I bet you've heard a lot of definitions for what love is. But have you ever wondered what kind of true, abiding, unchanging love looks like? The Bible says you're only going to find that in the love of God, in the gospel. The love he showed us when each of us had turned our backs on him and had decided to live for ourselves. How he didn't judge us immediately as would have been his perfect right to do, but how he sent his Savior, his Son, to be our Savior, to bear the wrath for us, so that if we would turn and repent of our sin, we would be forgiven and saved. That's love. And friend, that can be yours today if you will turn to Christ. Unlike romantic love, unlike friendship love, this love will never fade away. And Christian, right after those verses in 1 John, the apostle continues and he says, See that love? Beloved, if God so loved us, we should love one another. Love comes from God and then fuels our partnership with each other in the church. 
This is what Paul is praying for the Philippians, that the love they have in Christ would grow and grow and become greater and greater and bigger and bigger in their lives. He prays that this love would grow. He prays it would grow in knowledge, that that it wouldn't be merely empty sentiment, but that it would be full of true understanding of who God is. He prays that it would grow in discernment, That is, that that knowledge would then be applied practically to other people in the church in wise, discerning ways. All so that the Philippians might truly approve what is excellent. That they might be holy and pure, ready for Jesus' return. That's another theme that we'll find throughout Philippians as the Lord allows us to study this letter together, and that is the theme of the return of Christ. Paul is constantly aware as he writes that Jesus is coming back. And he desperately wants the Philippians to be ready. To grow in love with knowledge. To grow in purity. Dear church, are we ready? Are we growing in those things? I was struck as I looked at this passage at how love, along with those other things that he mentions, how love is a way to get ready for Jesus to come back. So as we seek to stimulate love for each other in this church, it's not just about creating a a witness in Loudoun County, although it is. It's not just about growing our our body so that we reach self-sustainability as a church plan though we'll talk about that more in the months to come. Actually, when when we think about loving each other, it's about getting ready for Jesus to come back. Love for one another and for God will prepare us. So are you ready? I fear that I am too often distracted by the cares of this world myself. And I'm caught constantly keeping my eyes down at my feet where I am now instead of at where my ultimate citizenship is in heaven. I would wager many of you feel the same way today. Take Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11 home and pray it for yourself and for those in this church. That our love would abound. That our purity would be evident so that when our Savior returns, in glory when Christ in power, resurrected, returns, he will find us waiting and take us home. As Paul says in verse 11, all to the glory and praise of God. In the very beginning, God created us for the glory and praise of his own name. And now he has recreated and redeemed us all for the glory and praise of his own name. And so may we grow in love. May we grow in perseverance and in confidence and faith and in unity together as a church for that very reason. The reason to which all the cosmos is directed to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray to that end. Lord, we are so grateful that Philippians is in the Bible. It's a letter of encouragement, of joy, 
And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that even though this letter was written by a man to an Eastern European church in the first century, it still is alive and, and pierces our souls with eternal truth this morning. So, Lord, would you change us? Would you give us increased love and joy, unity and perseverance as we study this book, Lord willing, in the months to come? We love you. And we pray that as we train our minds now for our last song on the wondrous mystery of the gospel, that this love we've been shown would be the love we show one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.